So in my teenage years, I used to play Magic the Gathering quite a bit, um, and that was going out to stores to play in weekly events and playing in tournaments and shit like that. And I didn't play a hell of a lot um, when I was younger. I did play a lot more than I do now, and it was more kind of like a monthly, fortnightly um, and then maybe like a quarterly playing in like a serious competitive tournament of, of like 50, 60 people. And for the most part in those tournaments, um, I, I did quite well early on considering how often I did play and how seriously I took it, which was pretty casually at the time, to kind of fill it in a bit. So the, the normal sort of structure of these sorts of tournaments is you'll have three or four rounds where uh, you'll just play off against different people and um, it'll be done based on a priority of um, the weight of your score essentially. So if you win a, a game and there's three games in a round potentially then you get X amount of points and then if you lose a game you only get one point kind of thing so um, essentially if you win you get three, if you lose you get one and then it takes like a weighting based on the total points that you scored during a round and you match off against similar position players in the next round. So basically the winners play against more winning players and the losers play against more losing players. And then this will continue for three or four rounds until um, they decide they have enough of a separation and people have had enough of a chance to play normally about three rounds and then at that point what they do is they will split off the what they call the top eight or the the highest performing players and then they will basically everyone else goes home and those top players play off for like a final um, standing or like a first second and third style um, awards ceremony essentially now at the time I was quite young and didn't really think too much of it, um, but I did manage to get into the, the top 8 position, um, which essentially meant that I would be playing against other people for, uh, at that particular event, a chance to go overseas and perform in a bigger tournament, essentially. So pretty much like the, the dude who wins the, the top 8 gets a, an invitation to attend the bigger tournament. So at this point um, I was playing some games and the, the competitiveness had kind of changed a little bit because I was still kind of doing well um, and it's at this point that people would start using less than honest ways to kind of get advantages in the game um, including essentially intentionally misinterpreting um, decisions that I was making in order to slightly warp it in their favour um, and also um, including just flat out just asking if I would um, like to concede in exchange for some form of percentage of the prize. Now because I was just a kid playing a card game casually um, I honestly didn't give a shit um, and I just kept playing as normal. Um, I just turned down his offer and just said, no, let's let's just keep playing. And uh, we did. And over time, uh, he as he was getting more and more desperate, he started to 
basically misinterpret more and more things and try to subtly cheat and do things that were kind of lightly against the rules or getting slight advantages or just doing weird shit that uh, was just dishonest essentially and he eventually turned the game around and started winning and then naturally just acting like a cocky bastard and um, yeah just being very excited that he had um, not needed to try to force his opponent to concede in order to make it through to a um, essential professional level of play or get an invite to the to the tournament kind of thing um, and after that game I didn't do so well so I ended up playing more casual players after that um, and it was a world of difference and they weren't complete dicks about it so um, yeah it was basically more of a one-off to do with that player or that breed of player um, and just what they wanted out of the outcome of the tournament versus what I wanted which was just to play and have fun so what would have happened if I went along with it and basically just conceded in exchange for a prize? Well, the outcome would not have been any different for either of us, except the game would have ended a lot quicker and he would have won by default, essentially, and I would have colluded in it. Now, the game Old School RuneScape was kind of like a fork in development from the main RuneScape game um, and now Old School RuneScape is essentially a RuneScape 2 or Old New RuneScape and RuneScape 3, the original game, um, just decided to continue going down its development path and is still called RuneScape but people refer to it as RuneScape 3. So what ended up happening was there was a, a series of um, snowball-y updates that uh, just made the game worse and worse overall until there was essentially a max exodus of players um, and at that point it was basically too late to revert the changes and they just kept going down that route anyway. Um, so there was stuff like a economy blocking update which was um, the removal of free trade which meant that you could only exchange or trade with players um, in similar sorts of value so you couldn't just give a player millions and millions of GP without getting something in return um, and then there was um, some changes done to the, the wilderness which is that massive PvP area um, and then there was also some changes made to probably the biggest indicator which was the evolution of combat or um, like so basically some updates which fundamentally significantly changed the way that the the combat system was used in the game to to interact with anything um, combat wise essentially and then one of the accompanying updates at around that sort of time was uh, something called the Squeal of Fortune, um, which essentially is you get a certain number of, of spins or tickets each day that you can redeem to uh, get a random chance or get some form of uh, random outcome um, in like a, a Wheel of Fortune style event. 
um, and there was all kinds of prizes in there from basically you know you just get like a slight uh, percent bonus increase to experience or gold or you get some cosmetic item or you get like a a skilling item or something that as you use it you get like a percent XP modifier kind of thing and then they also put in flat XP lamps into that rotation as well which was quite polarizing at the time so that was just an item that when you used it you just got a certain amount of experience and the skill of your choice or in a particular skill um, and it just instantly gave you those experience points and that skill so in theory what this meant you could do was essentially buy um, a lot of these tokens or tickets to spin the the wheel of fortune or the squeal of fortune as it was and at well over time given enough spins you would accrue a shitload of these um, these experience lamps and in theory if you spent enough money you could get basic you could basically max your account just by using these lamps that you got from this it, it would cost a shitload of money but in theory you could do it now these sorts of games attract a certain type of player um, over others which is essentially a min-maxed kind of nerd or like a most efficient way to do things playstyle um, and essentially what that means was the the meta or the the best most efficient way to level your account was to do this method um, albeit it would require a shitload of in real life money um, it was still essentially the the fastest way to level, level an account and because of that the the meta for uh, leveling an account the fastest is essentially to basically get another job so you can get more money so that you can not play the game and instead just cash into the game to buy the experience to level your account. So in essence the most optimal way to play the game in this scenario was to not play the game and to spend your time doing other things outside of the game to earn money to spend in-game to level up your account. Taking this concept back to actually playing the game of Magic, um, there exists a deck archetype in Magic called Dredge. Um, what Dredge does is it doesn't play Magic in the same way that a normal deck would, and instead it focuses on moving cards directly from your deck into your graveyard which is normally considered a, a lose condition um, from the what's called milling a library or milling a deck which is a win condition from um, an, a normal deck type uh, a normal mill deck would try to do that to an opponent but dredge tries to win the game by doing it to themselves um, by moving the cards directly from their library or their, their deck into their graveyard um, and then essentially by playing these really weird out of game cards that uh, do something when they move from the, the deck or the library into the graveyard um, 
they essentially get an advantage by putting uh, by playing them and then uh, they essentially get free creatures by doing nothing and then they will use those creatures as fuel to uh, do something either reanimate a, a win condition or um, create a shitload of zombies or, or something to that effect and then they will do all of that with a, very rarely by casting spells or or by actually interacting with the game which makes it a deck that uh, plays and wins by not playing and by winning so in magic you have this um, this group of cards called a sideboard um, which is normally 15 cards and what that sideboard allows you to do is to in between games and around you can chop and change your deck by substituting any of those 15 cards into your deck and it just means that you have answers to things that your deck normally wouldn't so normally your deck of 60 cards you you keep it really clean at 60 cards because you want to draw your key cards that win the game and normally in that 60 cards you keep it as a very well um, fine-tuned engine so that it can as quickly as possible you draw the cards you need to set up your your game state or whatever so that you can win the game as soon as possible and then after game one your sideboard allows you or gives you access to extra answers to things that your opponent might be using to win or to accelerate their game state into a place that they can win um, so you might have stuff in there that blows up artifacts or um, stops you from being targeted by certain things or protects your creatures or maybe counter spells or just stuff that you can use to help yourself to not lose quicker so that you can win and your opponent cannot win and in a lot of scenarios any format where dredge is legal you will dedicate a significant portion of your sideboard to fighting it just purely because it's such an oppressive deck to try to deal with if you aren't using very niche graveyard hate cards or um, very specific narrow cards that do very specific things so as a result of that a lot of people occupy a lot of their sideboard to dealing with dredge in those formats so we talked about how to win games of magic by not playing magic how to win essentially runescape by not playing runescape how do we win life without playing life well we already talked about bribery and corruption so we may as well stick with that you can essentially if you had enough money you could acquire things that most people could not like people's position and attitude and their opinions and media and stuff like that and on the same note of uh, being competitive by not being competitive we also have the concept of clustering similar businesses together so what happens is um, some analysts will look at a new region or a new place or location or whatever to to put their new store um, say there's like a beachfront section somewhere and they want to sell like soda and candy bars or something like that 
so what happens is you have the most popular area of the beach and you want to be as close to that as possible right so you'll have your zone you'll have your your ideal spot to be and typically that will be at the halfway point so that you can attract the most number of customers from that biggest area so you'll put your store smack bang in the middle of your target area so that the most people can gain access to that that's fantastic and now a competitor sees you put up a store there and they're like hey we want to do that we do the same thing we look at the same demographic let's put our store up they take a look at the same scenario and they deduce based on the same as you that to attract the most number of customers they want to put it bang smack in the middle hence right next door to you they erect a store which is pretty much the same as you selling the same products to the same customers so while this makes absolutely no sense when you look at it as a neutral outside observer and you you're like what the fuck there's two pizza stores right next to each other um, or two soda stalls at a beach or something like that or two vending machines which sell the exact same shit or anything of that degree um, you have to bear in mind that this has been targeted based on their optimal audience and their ability to reach the most of their target demographics so it's based on proximity to customers and probably very very small consideration of of proximity to competitors because either way they have to go to one of you so uh, yeah putting it right next door to the other is not going to be a factor in that decision really right and this also factors into franchises and what their motivations are to allow you access to the franchise so uh, there's some franchises out there or some chain stores that um, aren't specifically focused on selling product um, examples of this would be like mcdonald's or subway where the emphasis is more around store location and essentially having more stores or getting stores in higher real estate value areas or um, having store access in, in certain areas or just in Subway's case just having as many Subways as possible so that they can make bank on um, franchisee fees and stuff like that so it's, it's not always going to be in the franchise's best interests to make sure that there's only one store in a particular area. In some cases, they might want as many stores as possible so that they can make bank off your decision. Another example of um, anti-competitive competitiveness is in uh, corporations or applying for jobs. Um, so in general what you want to do is uh, sound professional essentially which uh, because of that you end up emphasizing certain words and terms and uh, the the whole act of trying to stand out means that instead you're actually guiding yourself to um, a representation that looks very similar to basically everyone else because everyone else is trying to stand out in the exact same way that you are so you all look the same 
The most prominent example I can think of for doing this is with uh, election campaigns and the propaganda or advertising associated with it. Now, what uh, most campaigners do these days is, well, pretty much everyone will have a sign that looks exactly the same. Uh, the only difference is the colouring and the the face, basically. So, all the signs will be identical. They will just have the political party's name, some branding or slogan or whatever and most importantly they will all have a little tick on them now the idea of the tick probably props to the first guy who thought of it was so that you psychologically associate that party with putting the tick in the the box on the voting form so for the first guy to do this it probably made a shitload of sense and it would have given him an advantage but now because everyone does it it means that no one stands out but you kind of have to do it because if you don't you're losing that edge so pretty much everyone just does it because and again with the placement thing you often see all the signs clustered very closely together much for a very similar reason of the most amount of people being well getting exposure to it and if we think about the wind conditions behind the game or the exercise or the, the advertising campaign or what have you there, there's always more than one way to meet a wind condition or more than one pathway to achieve that wind condition so even if uh, in the case of uh, Starcraft or where basically you just want to remove your opponent from the game by eliminating all the units or uh, something like or chess for example where you want to um, place the opponent into checkmate by making their king unable to defend themselves so you could take the conventional approach of positioning yourself as best as possible and making all the best decisions that you can um, and being an experienced player and being familiar with the game and thinking about moves critically and in advance and on different layers and all that jazz or alternatively you can also work at removing your opponent's ability to do that and to create a bigger disparity between you and your opponent's value or efficiency of play um, the most extreme example being physically removing the player from the game somehow and winning due to a concession. So if your opponent physically isn't, unable, isn't able to play, then you kind of win, right? So essentially what we have is instead of the best defense being a great offense, is we have um, the best offense is to not play the game or to to completely bypass the conventional win condition or to at least shortcut it entirely and a byproduct of this is often either a catch-22 scenario or um, some form of outcome where which is neither most perfectly advantageous to either party as is the case of whacking a store right next to your competitor but it's a case of lowering the edge that your competitor gets so that you can get a margin in. Typically the win condition associated with capitalism and 
doing business is to just turn over a profit to make money um, and to solidify a margin of some kind so so long as you're making money and you're not incurring expense instead why not in old school runescape there used to be an area of the game called the the revenant caves and this was an area in uh, kind of higher level wilderness um, which is a pvp area and inside the caves you could pvp as well um, and what ended up happening was essentially there would be clans or groups of people that would essentially control areas inside the roof caves or um, permit or deny access to it by attacking people who they did not approve of uh, who were in the area so basically big groups of pvpers um, who would regulate and uh, racketeer certain worlds or what have you so there's like how a couple of hundred game servers or whatever worlds um and you would need to 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 safely use the rev caves you would need to pay a protection clan and they would allow you to kill creatures in there for a certain period of time based on how much you paid um and basically if, if someone came to kill you you would yell out to them and then they would jump to your world and kill them um, and they would offer you protection which was more often than not protection from them to not kill you so more like a blackmail rather than a, a protection fee against others like a bodyguard service so originally this started off with uh, already existing pvp clans wanting to make a bit more money and have a bit more fun by allowing people to buy their services in this way and they would just hop through worlds and make sure that on their worlds there was no one there who hadn't been paying otherwise they would kill them and take their stuff um, what ended up happening was over time this slowly evolved and those PKing groups started to acquire more and more Venezuelan players who were desperate to get into that excess of money um, so that they could real world trade it for uh, their own benefit of getting food on the table and then after a while what ended up happening was a lot of these protection clans were vastly populated by Venezuelan players at a critical point what ended up happening was the Venezuelan run at the time then protection clans uh, essentially formed a uh, like a, a conglomerate group uh, or organization of essentially like a super clan um, of just Venezuelans and they kind of went a bit rogue and started using the rev caves for their own gain and then after a while what ended up happening was the original uh, PKing clans needed to essentially take back control from the Venezuelan run uh, resistance group essentially uh, and there was a massive fight out there um, and but yeah it, it was pretty bad and then soon after this there was a massive rework into the types of PvP you could do at the rev caves which just changed everything Alamal
and they also nerfed the uh, gold per hour that you could get so it was no longer a super profitable thing to do um, the types of PvP changed drastically to what's called singles plus away from multi-combat um, and in singles plus it's like it's PvE until someone tries to attack you and then only that one person can attack you essentially so what have we got today we have optimal ways to play games by not playing games the way that other people consider optimal we've got corruption and bribery being the best ways to play games or other ways to distract or disarm your opponents or make them less efficient as an alternative to creating a pathway to a win condition and then finally essentially a if you can't beat them join them mentality or if I go down I'm taping you with me or nice profits you got there I want to cut capitalism style mentality so yeah basically think twice why you play a game and how not only you can win but other people can lose there's more than one pathway to a win condition see ya